Hello, welcome to another episode of the Rippling Pages podcast. Great writers making waves with the word, all in conversation with me, Liam Bishop. And today I'm not joined by one writer, but two. Emilio Fry is a Brazilian writer based in Sao Paulo. He's the author of three books, but Sevastopol is the first to be translated into English. Published by New Directions in the USA, it is now appearing in the UK via Lolly Editions. Fryer was named one of Grant's best young Brazilian writers, and his fiction has appeared in The New Yorker. And joining him and me is Zoe Perry, the translator of Sevastopol. Her translation of other Brazilian writers include Rodrigo de Souza Leo's All Dogs Are Blue and the novels of Paulo Coelho. She's a founding member of the Styling Bureau, a literary translators collective, and it was a translation of Sevastopol which earned her selection for a residency at the Banff International Translation Centre. Emilio joined me from Sao Paulo, and Zoe joined me from Miami. Sevastopol, there's a mountaineer watching a film of her own climb up a mountain. There's a disappearance of a man from a motel. And there's another woman who meets a playwright who's writing a play about the siege of Sevastopol. While it might not be immediately apparent what connects these stories, can we start by talking about the development and the writing of Sevastopol and about how these stories came together? Well, Leon, um, this is a book made up of three stories uh, to be read as a collection, but it's also a book with a certain atmosphere themes and images that room throughout. I'd like these stories to function like images in a poem, for example, or I don't know, or as if three distinct objects were placed side by side. They are different, but together they seem to form something, uh, a kind of pattern, for example, and so, yeah, I, I went. I I wanted to write stories that stood on their own, but at the same time uh, could be connected by subtle links, by a shared pacing, and atmosphere that traveled through the whole book, a tone, uh, a common tone, as if beyond the voice narrating each of each of the stories, there was something subject. Uh, creating an effect, a feeling of strangeness, a uh, feeling of difference. After all, these stories are independent, but also of proximity, recurring themes, a common tone, a sense of progressions. And perhaps uh, then uh, this book began uh, or began to begin. But I'm lying. Um, of course, uh, because a book has many origins um, and you discover them as you go on. I think in the beginning, I thought about writing a collection of several short stories and in the process, however, these three stories grew and the others were forgotten. I think I even considered that each of the, the three could be a novel. I felt they formed a whole and, and something that made me really happy in the Zoe's translation was seeing how she managed to make those elements and atmospheres travel through these stories. 
yeah, listeners have an absolute treat today. We, we're also joined by uh, Zoe Perry, the translator of Sevastopol. One of the things I'd like to pick up on there, Emilio, is, and perhaps I'd like to pick this up with you, Zoe, and it's how Emilio talks about tone and, and, and the sort of the, the, the feeling that, that is persistent through this book when it isn't always apparent, you know, there's some commonalities, but what is consistent is this feeling of strangers, which coming into this novel, if that's something that you picked up on, upon reading it, how, how did you start to think about how you translate uh, Sevastopol? The way that I came to this book was a little unusual. Um, so instead of a publisher commissioning the book for a translation and then giving me the complete manuscript to work from, um, I it actually started out where I did a sample for Emilio's publisher in Brazil, which was the second story. Um, and when they sent me that to do the sample, they didn't send me the first or the third story. And I actually don't think the book had even been published yet in Brazil at that point. I was just sent the second story. And I, I don't think I asked too many questions about what the rest of the book is going to be like, but I, I just sort of assumed it was going to be a collection of short stories. And then it was maybe six months later, I did the third story, which is the one that was published in The New Yorker. And I think that was when I first started picking up on, oh, there's, because I like how there are these elements that run through each of the stories, but they're not very obvious. And they just sort of are there. There's enough that you're like, oh, wait a minute. Wasn't there something about a eucalyptus tree in that other story? Or wasn't there something about that wide avenue or something in another? So it, it's enough to make you kind of doubt yourself as a reader if you remembered what you'd read or not, or where, where did I know, where have I seen this before? And then when you start sort of piecing together all of these little images um, and all these elements that are repeated, but very subtly, um, that was kind of an aha moment uh, for me. Yeah, I finally did the, I translated the first story uh, once it was, once New Directions had picked it up to publish it. So I did them out of order. And sometimes I wonder if, because I tend to just go straight through from beginning to end when I translate, but I did wonder if I would have done them in a different order if I'd been given the complete book in the beginning. Yeah, Emilio, there, there, is, um, there is this kind of uncanniness to it. And you, you said this could have been short stories and it also could have been three separate novels or three separate bigger stories. It's not a long book by any means, but you, you structure it and you take the structure, don't you, from Tolstoy's Sevastopol sketches. But did you kind of intend to sort of mess with this timeline? Do you think that's what contributed to this kind of strangest intone? For example, um, in the book, there's always a person telling, imagining, remembering. I think the structure of the book um, has to do with this. And, and the, the story that's told, imagined, invented, takes the lead and winds up acting as a kind of commentary on the main story. One possible key uh, for thinking about the structure of the book. Uh, these characters that they are always imagining and inventing and telling stories 
and also that um, it's not always clear who is telling the story or to whom they're telling the story. Um, I think that definitely contributes to that atmosphere of not being entirely sure who's talking or who they're talking to or why they're talking, maybe even what their relationship with is that person. Yeah, and I, I think they are simple stories that start to become complex and they are told very clearly at the same time not you, you sometimes you um, don't know who is talking and I think this structure is based on this strategy I think yeah it's interesting that you both mentioned the second story because that is one that is very layered um, and one that I had, to, I had to I read it again just before we came on to the to, for the interview and that is one that is very weaving in and out and it is difficult to discern who the who the speaker is and throughout there is the tone uh, and the voice is still quite consistent you have very different situations um, different characters different genders places but the the eeriness I guess and the uncanniness I don't know if it's offset by that tone I think it's comes nicely into this this idea of style. And I'd like to start with you here, Zoe, actually. Translating a style, is this something that can be translated? Is, it, is style a thing? Picking up Emilio's work, is this, you know, were you trying to translate Emilio's style or is it not, a, not as simple as that? Yeah, I think absolutely uh, style can be translated and should be translated. I think there are certain writers who I really like whose style I don't think I would be able to translate well. Um, I think some translators are better suited for some styles than others. When I first read the first, the second story, I immediately could tell that there was a, a definite style. And that's, I mean, and in some ways I feel like if it were just translating words, that's the easy part. Um, it's the style that you really have to get right, the voice. I was reading a, the, the conversation between you and Emilio in um, Partizan Hotel, and you both talk about this idea of control. Um, and you quote the Hungarian writer, Peter Esterházyk, who says, the writer's style has more to do with what he doesn't know or what he or she doesn't know than what he or she does know. Um, and I wanted to pick up on that, really, and why you kind of both sort of focused on this idea. Because this book is, in a way, is about control and the kind of control over our stories. But, Amelia, what do you, why was that quote so important for you for writing this and for your style uh, of writing? I tend to believe that writing is more like destroying plans, uh, previous ideas. Uh, I think that's the most pleasant, pleasant thing about writing, when unexpected voices come out of your head, you for, forget the plan because a new one is emerging. Remember, remember uh, William Kennedy, uh, the American writer, um, he remember being enormously impressed by Damon Runyon's style when he was a kid because it was so unique. Um, and this style said, like, look at me, I'm a style, you know, uh, and well, and then 
he read Graham Greene and he couldn't find a style. And Kennedy thought, why doesn't this man have a style? He liked his stories and his novels, but what what was his style? Of course, he has an extraordinary style in, tell, in telling a story, great economy. I don't know. Obviously, these were adolescent attitudes towards style, valuing ways of being singular. Uh, Kennedy admired writers and journalists who had style and then he realized that it was an artificial artificial imitating these writers what we are not able to do has more to do with what we don't know um, what we can achieve of course Sevastopol is a very I don't know very constructed uh, book but in a way, when you were writing um, the style, the syntax, the vocabulary, um, you 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 start to uh, to build something when you start to uh, fill using structures that you didn't know. Uh, before. And I think that quote, because on first read, I think it sort of sounds like, oh, is he saying that writers should be writing about topics they know nothing about and that, you know, not lived experience or um, something like that. And I think rather than talking about factual knowledge of a setting or a place in time, I think maybe he means more the sort of conscious use of language. And so you can have like a conscious style, but also a subconscious style, which is, I think, influenced by everything that sort of went into your head up to that moment that you were writing it. Um, and so I think it, you can be aware that there's always going to be a part of your style that you're not necessarily controlling. It's becoming more conscious, I think, in when you reread uh, the text, but in the beginning, um i think it's not and the style has to do with this yeah and i i mean something i i think about a lot with style too is that um i think translators had to be really careful to not put their own style onto their translations um not naming any names but i there are definitely translators who i sort of feel like you you read their translations of several different authors and it kind of all sounds a little bit similar. And so then you start wondering, well, are these books actually that similar in the original language or is this just the translator's style? Um, and I think also that can happen unconsciously, like you're not really thinking about doing it, it's just the way the words sort of come out onto the page. What kind of relationship do you guys need to have, you know, to make this a success. We've gotten to know each other since this started, but I kind of just did this each story and then would send him a bunch of questions and then we'd have kind of a conversation off of that. But I mean, like the first book I translated, the author is dead, had died a few years before. Um, so there was no way to have any contact with him. 
and I, you sometimes hear translators joke about, oh, I only want to translate dead authors because they're, <laughs> I think they must have had bad experiences with their authors. Um, it's, I think it makes it a lot more difficult and you're just sort of, I mean, sometimes you ask a question to an author and they, they will literally just say, I don't know. I don't know what I was doing there. Um, but at least it's an answer instead of you just saying, why did he do this? Is it this is what he wanted to do? Is this intentional? Emilio, are there any moments where you, and I think this, this idea is quite interesting actually, you know, where you didn't know the answer to any of those questions because this, because this book is so much about what we do and what we don't. And it's that, you know, um, that quote from Mr. Hazy, it's, yeah, it's totally about the, the playoff between the conscious and the unconscious. Uh, well, um, I think in May, um, the, the second story, um, the old honor of the inn, Milo, uh, he, he receives the story. He says almost nothing, just listens. And, and this attentive listening is the key of the story. And... Um, and in the first story, uh, December, Lena, the, the character watches a video in an art gallery and writes a long email to the artist who made the video. And this email is the story itself. And Lena is sure that what she saw in the video was her story. She's sure that the artist stole her story and gradually we understand that the only person who could know all that about her is Gino, the other character, the documentary filmmaker with whom Lena had an affair, the guy who accompanied her on several climbs around the world. So the letter we are reading is a letter to Gino, a letter of love um, and, and and everything changes from there. The story takes on another meaning in retrospect because the tone of a story depends on that to one whom the narrative voice is speaking. So I'm very concerned about this. Uh, who is speaking? Who is uh, telling? There's one thing that I thought you did quite a lot. I felt like you enjoyed disturbing these stories and you you spoke a lot there about um escape and the character escaping through fantasy but there's also a kind of opposition between who is listening to whose story um and even though it's kind of a singular voice there's a sense that it's this kind of different perspectives weaved in to that perspective and you said earlier one of the things that when you write in fiction is that you are in terms of the structure, you are destroying plans for other things to emerge. Yeah, um, I think the overlayered uh, voices that cross the book create this sensation and create words that feel nearly mythic and real at the same time. And I think um, laws defines each of these characters, I think, also. And in a way, is also what keeps them going. Although they, these characters belong, for example, to the upper classes, um, 
these characters, a mountain climber, this property owner, a young museum worker, and feel themselves far from the lives their privilege had promised them. And, and it, it, it was very important for me. I, I remember what one character thinks about the big picture about his generation and crushed by another 10, 15 years of paralysis. Uh, another sees her friends trapped inside office buildings, uh, locked in the struggle from, for promotion. And so Sao Paulo is described as a giant space station, a forgotten corner in the vastness of the heavens. Well, um, um, one gets a sense that for these characters, uh, there's no escape from the from the modern world. And I also, I think it's also interesting the idea of the um, it feeling like the stories were voiceovers because in the first story at least, Gino actually records Lena several times and then uses those recordings as actual voiceovers on images that he's shooting. Yeah, I just I just felt when I when I was reading that it, it that's the kind of that tone that idea of we were sort of watching watching people watch uh, uh, an image of their you know their life and 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 it's that that yeah that escape that escape they are kind of caught in these quite um, bourgeoisie pursuits we call them the the members of you know the middle upper classes but. Where does your sympathies lie then, I guess, in this respect, Emilio, you know, and Zoe, where do your sympathies lie with these characters? Emilio has asked me, like, which was my favorite story? And we talked about, like, favorite characters. And I have said that the first one is the one I struggled probably the most with the voice because I just didn't feel much affinity for Lena, which when you think about it, she's the one who has the most obvious struggle that she's dealing with, but I just didn't have a lot of sympathy for her. Um, I don't know, there was just something about her that I was just like, <laughs> I don't know, I found, well, I think like Nadia in the last story is the most likable or the most relatable, at least for me. But just because a character isn't likable doesn't mean that it's a bad character. It's just that, you know, you've got to try and make them similarly unlikable, maybe in English. Yeah, we do have this thing, don't we, where we have to, that we, people invest in stories where they think that they have to like the character. And it, you, I think if you're doing that, you're missing out on a lot of good literature. There's, there's a lot of characters in, uh, you know, literature that are pretty, despicable and not very nice and no, not always not despicable just not you know particularly pleasant and you're missing out on a lot of literature if that is the case but um yeah and i just wondered if there's something about you know the fact that do you know would these are these characters particularly you know do they like you know themselves to an extent are they even characters that think of themselves in that way or i mean i think lena for sure thinks about whether people like her or not um Although I think the importance that she gives that has changed over the course of her life, sort of pre 
accident and then who she became after the accident. Yeah, I mean, and also Nadia and Klaus for sure care about who likes them. Uh, and yeah, I think they're all kind of want to be likable. They're just very human characters. Yeah, and, and I think we can learn about their they um, about the characters from the ways they relate to the stories they hear, invent or imagine. Um, well, in the first story, Lena, uh, what we know about her comes from a kind of narrative. Uh, suddenly, the stories she's been telling others and to herself are no longer useful and all of a sudden there is a story taking the place of her own story well we don't really know which story is her life story we don't know who she really is uh well and um but i i think the more likable i i uh, I agree, Zoe. Nadia, I think it's um, it's uh, Nadia is writing about the ups and downs of a man and woman. He's writing a story um, inside the story, and in this in in the stories written and rewritten by Nadia, the way the characters relate to these stories. Uh, we, we can learn about the characters from, from these ways in the book. And I, I think all of this, the characters are involved in this sort of telling and retelling of stories in different ways. Um, I mean, Nadia is literally rewriting the story. Um, but then, you know, Adan, is sort of rewriting his own story. There's the story of what happened to him back in Peru and then in Brazil, and he has this seemingly new life. Um, and the same thing with Lena. She has to, she's almost forced to learn to retell her story a different way after the accident. So, yeah. I kind of even speaking about it now, because it is, it, it's a book that rewards such um, repeated reading and close reading um you know i've read it you know several times several times now and um and it, there's just always something else that comes that comes out that sort of comes to the the surface that sort of lifts um and it's like you know it's like something floats into the kind of top of a, of a pool you just suddenly see something else chosen to write about two women can we just ask about the choices you made in doing that I, I choose, for example, uh, to write stories with um, two characters in each one. Uh, for example, th th there, are, there are a lot of um, elements that you can find in each story of the book. For example, um, um, the first one is a story in first person and the last one is a story in first person and they are um, they they have women narrators and and um and for example the places where these stories take place 
the, the Crimean city of Sevastopol, Everest, Lima, Sao Paulo. And I, try, I tried to work from representations of these places, um, or rather from the idea of how those representations can contain what's real in itself. Um, well, how they can, like fiction, speak more to what's real than reality itself. So it's um, it's an element that you can find in every story, for example. And well, and for example, in the book, uh, Sevastopol first appears as a picture on a post postcard, then as a city on a map. Uh, the mountains, the Himalayas look like they are made of cardboard appearing in the midst of a commercial shoot. Lima in the 80s is um, a kind of hallucination. Klaus is a kind of a vampire. Uh, I, I, I tried to, to um, repeat some themes and some strategies and in all the book to create this um the sensation this effect uh this kind of aesthetics of the book so you know when you come down so you pick up you pick up Emilio's stories um and you see these three different separate stories how, I guess it's a question of how much are you putting yourself in the mind? Yeah, I mean, I guess whenever I translate, I do kind of think if I, if this, if this is a person that I know, um, and even if it's, I don't know anyone quite like that, if there's just elements of that person that feel familiar to me in some way. But at the same time, I don't think it's impossible to translate someone who you've never met, if you want to put it that way. Um, and a lot, of, but something I do is I think about like, so I was translating something that um, had a couple of characters who were sort of from the countryside. And I'm originally from uh, Southeastern Kentucky and like in the Appalachian mountains. And so a lot of what I was, when I was trying to figure out the voice for him, I was just like, oh, what is something that my grandfather would say? Like, how would my grandfather have said that? Not because I wanted to situate the reader in any sort of, you know, particular Appalachian voice, but just to let the reader know that there is some distinction here with the way these people are speaking or um, the background of this character compared to maybe the other characters. I do that a lot. I'm like, oh, how would my dad, would my dad say that? Or yeah it's a bit of a debate isn't it at the moment within literature can we you know can we write stories of people that aren't you know that aren't like us or i guess can we you know translate stories of people that aren't um like us i mean i don't think that i'm capable of translating every book that comes out of brazil and i don't want to do that um i think one of the nice things about translators is that we it's a there's a real community um, and particularly for Portuguese to English translators, we kind of all know each other. I mean, there's some that we don't 
know, but yeah, most of us know each other personally. And when you know, get to know one another, you realize what each person's strengths are. I mean, there's, I'll read a book sometimes and be like, oh, there's no way I could translate this, but I know who could, uh, you know. This is the um, Starling Agency, isn't it, that you... The Starling Bureau, yeah. Starling Bureau, big event that you're... And is that basically a collective then that's 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 for this kind of support network for translators? Um, well, because we, we all work from different languages. Um, so there's four of us and sort of among us, there's French, Italian, Spanish, Danish, Swedish. Um, so we don't actually compete on work or there's not really a lot of opportunity to sort of collaborate in that way. Um, it's kind of a support group, <laughs> I would say. Um, and it's helpful when you're negotiating a contract or um, you're trying to pitch a book. Um, we do workshop translations with each other because um, it's nice to get a reader who doesn't can't read the original text. So they're not going to be comparing it to, they're going to be reading it as an English original. As usual for the Ripple in Pages podcast, we have a reading. Today, that's no different. At first, you'll hear the Portuguese. Then you'll hear an English translation of the passage that Emilio reads. I will give you some background. This excerpt uh, that I will read from the first of three stories in Sevastopol. A scene I wrote many years ago, um, you could say it was from this image and around it that the story fell into place. Um, so Lena, a young mountaineer who dreams of climbing the seven summits, she suffers an accident on the mountain. It's in the first person she's telling what happened and when she gets to the moment of the accident, there is a cut. The story jumps from the accident to a kind of dream, a memory, in which she and her ex-boyfriend are away on a weekend trip. They are in the countryside, a nice place, like so many in the interior of the state of Sao Paulo, and plan to spend the day mountain biking. But suddenly, Lena is in pain. We don't know why. Uh, so they have to abandon their plans for the weekend and go back to the city. Uh, in the reaction of Theo, uh, her boyfriend, isn't the, the best. Um, and he seems impatient, annoyed, upset. So I will read uh, this very short passage from Começamos a descida. Já estávamos na altura do campo 1 quando uma das cordas esticadas sobre uma fenda de gelo se soltou. Um bloco de gelo saiu do lugar, perdi o equilíbrio e caí. Minhas pernas ficaram presas. Foi muito rápido. Senti um calor, como se tivessem colocado alguma coisa quente nos meus joelhos. Algo que excluía todos os meus pensamentos. Durante o tempo em que esperei o resgate, tive certeza de que ia morrer. Dezenas de pessoas morrem por temporada no Everest. O resgate é difícil. Helicópteros não têm acesso a muitos trechos. Na ambulância, tive alucinações. 
Numa delas, eu me via no meio de um gramado, nas imediações de uma casa isolada, ladeada por um córrego e uma fileira de eucaliptos, e sentia uma dor repentina. Chamava o Theo e dizia que achava melhor a gente voltar. Ele parecia ficar aborrecido. Tinha reservado o dia para fazer de bicicleta a trilha do morro e agora isso. A gente colocava as mochilas no carro e partia. Na estrada, ele me mandava respirar, relaxar. Dizia que, no fundo, aquilo era culpa minha. Você precisa se alimentar melhor, Lena. Comer menos carne, praticar yoga, mudar a rotina, fazer do corpo um instrumento para expansão e conhecimento da alma, etc. Ele ligava o som e vasculhava o celular atrás de alguma música. Ficava assim, olhando a tela, olhando a pista, a pista sendo engolida por baixo da luz dos faróis, a cabeça dele se movendo de um jeito sonolento, azul, meio fosforescente, destacada da penumbra como se fosse uma estátua. Uma hora ele se virava para mim e eu achava que ele queria me dizer algo, mas ele não dizia nada. Abaixava o rosto e voltava a fuçar o aparelho, olhando alternadamente para a tela, para a pista. Lá fora, a brisa fazia inclinar o mato que tomava quase todo o acostamento. O céu era uma poça de óleo, dormia tranquilo atrás de uma única nuvem e submergíamos numa sensação escura quando algo de repente se acendia. Eu não tinha bem tempo de me virar. O Theo levantava a cabeça e acho que víamos ao mesmo tempo uma mancha pesada se movendo no asfalto na nossa frente. Eu dava um grito e ele freava. O carro tratava as rodas. O carro travava as rodas e se arrastava até parar, a uns dois metros daquilo que nos encarava. A crina, um guincho e os cascos. O bicho retomava o passo mole e sumia. We started our descent. We were arrayed at Camp 1 when one of the ropes fixed across a crevasse came loose. An ice pack shifted. I lost my balance and fell. My legs got stuck. It all happened so fast. I felt hot, like something warm had been placed on my knees. Something that didn't allow me to think of anything else. While I waited for the search and rescue team, I was sure I was going to die. Dozens of people die on Everest every season. Search and rescue is difficult. There are many sections helicopters don't have access to. In the ambulance, I had hallucinations. In one of them, I found myself in the middle of a lawn around an isolated house flanked by a stream and a hall of eucalyptus trees and I felt a sudden pain. I called Theo and he said he thought we'd better go back. He seemed upset. He had planned to go mountain biking that day, and now this. We put our backpacks in the car and left. On the road, he told me to breathe, relax. He said that deep down, it was all my fault. You need to eat better, Lena. Eat less meat, do yoga, change your routine, make your body an instrument for expanding and gnawing the soul, etc.
he turned on the stereo and scrolled through his phone searching for some song. He stayed like that, looking at the screen, looking at the road, the road getting swallowed up under the headlights, his head moving in a sleep blue sort of phosphorescent way, detached from the darkness like the bust of a statue. At one point, he turned to me and I thought he wanted to tell me something, but he said nothing. He looked back down and kept fiddling with his phone, looking at the screen, then at the road. Outside, the brush that covered almost the entire shoulder bowed in the breeze. The sky was a puddle of oil, dozing peacefully behind a single cloud, and we were submerged in a feeling of darkness when suddenly something lit up. I didn't have time to turn. Theo looked up, and I think we both saw it at the same time. A blur lumbering across the asphalt in front of us. I screamed, and he braked. The wheels locked, and the car came dragging to a stop, about two meters from it, now staring at us. The main, I screech and hooves, the animal ambled off, sluggish, and vanished. Tolstoy um, and the Sevastopol sketches. You've taken the structure, and there's some references in there to the Crimean War, Emilio. And I start by asking why this book and what, why did it influence you so much? And then, Zoe, I'd like to kind of find out how much you know what you took from uh, this book uh, as well, and whether you took anything from it, or if you need to take anything from it when you when you translated something that that's got something pinned on it to an extent. But Emilio, what you know, what is it about Tolstoy's book? Yeah, um, well, uh, these stories in the book are named after months of the year, August, December, and May, and this relates to, to Tolstoy, Sevastopol sketches, which is also made up of three parts, Sevastopol in December, Sevastopol in May, in, and Sevastopol in August. Um, well, uh, Tolstoy had been in Sevastopol during Crimean War. It's his first book. It's a journalist book about the war. But of course, he's a read Tolstoy, the descriptions, the characters, everything is brilliant. Uh, Tolstoy describes um, these three moments of the Crimean War, the resistance, the siege, and the fall. And I tried to follow uh, the atmosphere of these three moments, these three feelings. My book has absolutely nothing to do with any historical work. It's not about war. I think uh, there is an air of conflict and defeat runs uh, throughout uh, the three stories in Sevastopol are explicitly connected. Um, together they paint a true portrait of human suffering equivalent to Tolstoy's stories of the Crimean War. And I think I, I love this book. I think it's a very interesting book and because 
Tolstoy is brilliant. Um, it's full of human drama and and I think it's uh, interesting this kind of uh, connection with with the classic book, but in a um, different way uh, because it's connected, but it, it isn't. So um, I'm interested in this kind of almost a kind of recreation of uh, word. An, an universe, but in another key, in another way. For anyone who's listening, to, it is a short, but it's a short Tolstoy book as well. I mean, yeah. Tolstoy's short stories are 200 pages, but this is a short book. Yeah, but, and, and, and there is a hallucinatory aspect. Um, well, the, the, the Tolstoy characters inhabit this shadowy, unconscious space well when the reader follows along with the lives of people like Milo, Klaus, Nadia and Lena characters uh, from my book I'd like there to be a bit of that feeling of Tolstoy book of uh, kind of seeing what we cannot see uh, they are a, a, a fever dreamish uh, aspect in, in, in the book, I think, is connected with um, Tolstoy. Knowing this about the book, I wondered what you took from Tolstoy's book and whether you need to take anything from it, if it's important to translation um, or not. I mean, I didn't actually read Sevastopol sketches until after I'd translated. So my answer would be no, I don't think <laughs> uh, <laughs> But I, something I really like is that Emilio is very um, open and transparent about what influences him. And I think some writers can be really like, no, this is my art, my work. This came 100% from me. And I think that's a little bit disingenuous that, you know, so I like that he acknowledges all of his influences. And I also like, he recognizes that something can be an influence without it being a mirror image of it or because, you should never read Goodreads reviews, but I noticed that someone wrote a review that said, well, I don't know what this has to do with Tolstoy, but, uh, oh dear, oh dear. and clearly they'd taken a very literal impression of, you know, influenced by Sevastopol sketches and didn't think about it any further. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that it's not influenced by Sevastopol sketches because it's about the Crimean War, or it's about another war, or um, it's following along in the same places or similar characters. It's it's influenced by it because it's the structure, but then also just this atmosphere and this sort of like feeling that runs through all three of them, which is is similar to what you get when you're reading Sebastian sketches. I don't know. It's just what makes the book so unique and so special. It's this feeling. It's this tone, and I don't know how. I don't know how it's achieved, and I'm, you know, we're not sure. We want to know how it's achieved because it's what makes the book uh, so special and so interesting. Uh, obviously, there's lots of other things that make it interesting as well. But you know, this is Emilio's first book translating into English, and so you know, I I don't know if there's any sense of duty, Zoe, that um, that that you're, you're sort of helping introduce 
you know, English readers to Emilio. Um, but you do have three books, don't you, Emilio? Um, but this is the first encounter that we'll probably get, uh, apart from the people who might have read you in the New Yorker. So, you know, without that and with without that, we wouldn't have access to, to this book. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel a huge dude, even if it's not the author's first yeah. appearance in English. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a big responsibility. It's a truly pleasure to uh, be translated. Um, uh, uh, I hope people enjoying this and it's very, it, it was my first uh, experience um, reading my own work in another language also. So um, it's, um, it's very weird in the, um, and, 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 and I think Zoe did a great uh, work and it's very nice to see uh, my imagination uh, dressed with her words. And I think everything in fiction uh, is um, words. So um, it's very interesting to see an universe in other words. And so I'm very happy to um, with the book and and I'm I'm truly happy with uh, the result of this. I think so is great. <laughs> Well, you guys both being here, well, I'm really glad that either way that I've had a chance to talk to you both because it is a book that I really do uh, enjoy um, and have enjoyed and love. And I and I really do wish wish you both the best. Genuinely, really grateful uh, for you both to join me. So, um, Emilio, Zoe, uh, thank you very much for being on the Rippling Pages. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us, Ian. Thank you, Zoe. My thanks to Emilio and Zoe for joining me today. And would you believe it or not, that's the last episode of Series 2, Horizons. Now before we go, I'd just like to thank again the writers that joined me on this series. Holly Barton, Kalisa Ray, Jeff Chun, Jesse Greengrass, Joe Scott Coe, Charlie Bayliss, and of course Emilio and Zoe. My biggest thanks are reserved for you for listening. Now it's time for a bit of a break, but I will be back. In the meantime, it'd be great if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram at rippling underscore pages. That's at rippling underscore pages. Or why not get in touch at ripplingpagespod at gmail.com. It'd be great to hear from you. Of course, you can leave a five-star review on Apple. Otherwise, it's until next time. Thanks once again. Stay safe.